0: Uh, Good morning all, Uh, this is Sunday the 6th of December and um, I thought I would uh, do an audio reading from the SIA fact file that uh, gives you a fairly clear indication of what SIA as an exam board are looking for students at AS level uh, to know about the judiciary. Um, This is, remember, the final section of the AS2 paper, doesn't mean to say you can't do it first. Uh, Two questions, both explain questions, one for five, One for 15, I would stress the importance of putting in examples. Uh, So that's point evidence explanation for five and probably in the 15 marker, point evidence explanation times three. That's a pretty good indicator of it. Remember in the 15 marker, you're not having to put two sides of an argument. It will ask you one side. uh, Uh, Let's have a look at it anyway, the judiciary. Um, In terms um, of, see on what they say, it refers to all of the United Kingdom's judges. However, from the point of view of studying AS2, uh, the British political process, the focus is on the role of the judges who sit on the UK Supreme Court. So we're not looking at high courts, we're not looking at courts of appeal, we're not looking at county courts, and not looking at magistrates. Although it's probably good, and I I did a lesson for you, uh, reading the lesson, where it gives you the structure of the courts. Obviously those who get on the UK Supreme Court have, have risen up the ranks, um, there are 12 senior judges in the UK Supreme Court. Remember I mentioned to you that sadly uh, one of those members of the court, uh, Brian Kerr from Northern Ireland Winston and Coleman School, sadly died last week. Um, but cases which end up in the Supreme Court have usually started, as I say, in the High Court or at the Court of Appeal. Most of these case, cases are about clarifying the meaning or scope of a law and making sure that it doesn't breach the Human Rights Act. Um, remember the Human Rights Act brought in uh, by the Labour government, Tony Blair, very sort of unusual period in uh, British political history. A lot of constitutional change, House of Lords, devolution, obviously the changes to the courts themselves, um, or anything that contradicts an EU law. Now, obviously that is going to move on, although it has to be said, a lot of those laws in many ways will be entrenched in, in British law. It is the role of clarifying the meaning of the law that is the most political, of all the rules the judiciary performs and is a matter of significant interest, as you saw uh, over Brexit and the withdrawal agreement, uh, and as you saw uh, even more recently with the prorogation attempted um, in the early part of the autumn uh, by uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, autumn, I should say, uh, 2019. The rule gives the judiciary the power to suggest that a law needs to be changed, which is seen as a political rule than just purely a judicial one. The purpose of the judiciary is to make sure that all laws are fair, that all laws comply, as it was in the past with the EU law. Moving on, that's going to change. And the Human Rights Act of 1998, which came into law in 2000, and to make sure the law applies equally to all citizens. So let's look at some of the sort of things that they might ask you. This certainly could be for five marks, potentially for 15. It's to explain what is meant by judicial independence with an example. It's important for the judiciary to be independent from the executive if they're to perform the rules effectively and without bias. Those of you studying history will obviously think of judiciaries in countries like Nazi Germany, where clearly the the courts were just an extension of of the Nazi party and very much uh, ruled and governed, if you like, made decisions uh, that were uh, clearly uh, not fair and, and equal in any stretch of the imagination. They were extremely biased. There are a number of ways judicial independence has been protected in the UK. The principle that the judges should be free from political control is a key feature of a democratic system. So how do you ensure independence? So let's say you've got a five marker. Uh, you could simply say, well, one method is security of tenure, um, not being easily removed from your post, in other words. So once appointed judges can only be removed from their post if they resign or retire, the retirement age is 75. Um, or commit a serious crime. In other words, they can't be sacked for going against government or challenging a law. The government might not like it, uh, but you can't sack them for that. Um, secondly, they have guaranteed salaries. Judges are paid a guaranteed salary, uh, which can't be altered by parliament from what's called the Consolidated Fund, the government's general bank account at the Bank of England, and I'd love to have that. This means that politicians can't threaten to reduce their salary are offered to increase their salaries in order to obtain the court rulings they want. In simple terms, they can't be bought uh, and they're paid good salaries. Well, that's to be said, many of these judges, in fact, nearly all these judges come from practice as barristers, where in many cases, they would have been earning more money. Some people see being a, made a, a member of the UK Supreme Court as a huge honor, huge privilege. Um, your, your name obviously is going to go down in history to a certain extent. Uh, and also it is almost like a civic duty, but the salaries are, 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 are good. Um, you know, this is not minimum wage. Thirdly, the growing separation of powers. Uh, the creation of a, a new UK Supreme Court in 2009, so not that long ago, has enhanced the independence of the judiciary. Prior to this, most senior judges actually sat in the House of Lords. This is why they talked about the House of Lords as the final court of appeal, even though it was only referring to the Law Lords in the House of Lords using that building. Uh, and the Lord Chancellor, who's a, a member of the cabinet, had a lot of influence over appointments. So if you look up a name like Derry, as in, but he wasn't called London, Derry Irving, you would see that he was one of the, he was the last of the sort of Lord Chancellors under Tony Blair, that position, uh, has, has changed and instead of being someone who had a, uh, a role in both the le- legislature the executive and the ju- heading the judiciary that has now been changed entirely so they've removed separated the judiciary from uh, at least aspects of it from the legislature and the executive the, the lord chancellor who's a member of the cabinet now the lord chancellor is now the secretary of state for justice uh, and they had a lot of influence over appointments there's never really any serious suggestion that these appointments, unlike say United States of America, were actually politically motivated, but it was uh, a matter now of transparency and integrity, that this should be removed from government. It's meant as I say the Lord Chancellor had a role in government and the legislature and the judiciary. This was seen as a breach of the principle of the separation of powers, which is arguably seen in some ways as fundamental to an idea of a, a democratic system. Uh, since the passage of the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, the role of Lord Chancellor has been significantly reduced. Separation of powers is seen as desirable in a modern democracy, and the current roles and responsibilities of Lord Chancellor demonstrate, uh, well, hopefully demonstrate very clearly, um, that uh, uh, clear separation of powers, uh, which was not previously the case. So it's tidied things up. It's put uh, Britain, if you like, into, uh, uh, shall we say it? An area where it can, can claim the judiciary operates within a democratic system. Fourth area is an independent appointment system. Uh, again, it was the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, also created an independent judicial appointments commission to remove some of the power for judicial appointments from the PM. Technically, a prime minister could question an appointment that's been made, but uh, that would obviously uh, be a, a serious constitutional clash, so it hasn't happened. Uh, the other area is training and apprenticeship, most senior judges have worked their way up through the system. They've begun to as barristers and they're therefore proud of the profession and unlikely to simply buy to political pressure. You know, it's a matter, it's their tribe, it's their team. Uh, they're the guys that wear the wigs, okay, and, and the nice gowns. Another area you might be asked about is what's called judicial neutrality. So be careful if you get a question for five or even for 15. And notice in that 15 marker, you're really bringing in maybe three of of maybe in that case five points for a five marker you are only bringing in one but for judicial neutrality you'd have to uh, look at something slightly different so let's be careful about this one so what is judicial neutrality it's different to judicial independence as it simply means judging judges acting impartially you know no fear or favor not taking sides in other words judges being able to suspend their personal biases uh when making rulings about the law I mean, judges live in the real world, uh, they've had real experiences, they may have families, uh, they may maybe attitudes towards, well, you could say things like race, they may have attitudes towards class, they may have attitudes towards um, a range of issues, they undoubtedly have a, a political point of view, are they conservative leaning, labour leaning, liberal leaning, do they not have a party political association, obviously they can't be actively involved in politics whilst in uh, their, their roles, uh, it's impossible to guarantee judicial neutrality. Uh, however, there are many ways of trying to maintain it. So, first of all, there's a degree of anonymity. Judges have traditionally tried to stay out of the public eye and to avoid being drawn into arguments about their rulings. I think I've said uh, that uh, the general rule is you, you, you're not going to get a judge, a sitting judge, uh, you might get a retired one, uh, giving, uh, pontificating about uh, Brexit or pontificating about the COVID restrictions. Um, Lord Sumption is the example of a retired UK Supreme Court justice who is very active in the media and very active in the press and very active in the public arena and talking about things like COVID restrictions. You also got a restriction on political activity. Judges are not supposed to campaign on behalf of either a political party or indeed a pressure group. And there have been a few examples in the past of, you know, I think it was the wife of a senior judge who was a member of Amnesty International, and by sort of by association, that's somewhat Create created a degree of, sort of, you know, question the neutrality of that judge. They can vote, but their political views should not be known to the public. So they're not out in the hustings. Uh, they're not they're not sort of having the situations at rallies where said like, here comes the judge, here comes the judge it doesn't happen. And also they have to give legal justifications for arguments. You know, sometimes when a minister gets up in parliament, it you was know, Brandon Lewis did it with Vanuken case and reads out a statement. You know, it, that's not of a standard, and not of a quality. Uh, that you would expect from a, a court of law and from a judge. Uh, judges expect to show clearly how they came to their decisions and this should be rooted in law, not personal preference. So they have to quote the law, reference perhaps previous cases, reference key principles about justice, natural justice, etc. Um, they're much more like surgeons really in the sense they have to go and explain every aspect of what they've done, why they're doing it, why they've come to that conclusion. Supreme Court decisions are available to the public on the Supreme Court's website. Worth maybe going there and have a quick look at them. You'll see these are not political speeches. Uh, These are very long drawn out, very difficult perhaps to read. Uh, This is why other legal experts pour over their decisions, Uh, look for holes in them, look for maybe opportunities, particularly if you lose in a particular case, for opportunities to challenge it. Um, Anyway, the neutrality of judges is questioned because of their background. So this is where you might get a question, explain maybe reasons why uh, judicial neutrality is questioned uh, because of their background, which continues to be a reflection of a narrow section of society. Most judges still tend to be white, middle-class men who have been privately educated and have attended possibly Oxford or Cambridge. It's a far cry from the norms uh, uh, and calls into question their ability to truly identify with wider society. Critics also point out that the Human Rights Act of 1998 has drawn judges more and more into the political arena, into sometimes what they call the political domain. This is called the politicisation of the judiciary, and it's generally seen as something to be avoided. The judiciary, however, would defend their role by pointing out that they have a role in defending the public from the political establishment, and they are simply adhering to the Human Rights Act if and when they make judgments which go against the government. So in other words, judges would argue that they're what's called a counter-majoritarian force. By that, I mean that, essentially, remember, in our system, because of things like first-past-the-post, you can get a government elected with a significant majority, like Boris Johnson of 80, uh, who can control the legislative um, agenda, who can have significant powers, uh, both in government and, uh, and through parliament, to make decisions. So there needs to be a checking or balancing power. Uh, thus, the cases like the one Gina Miller took uh, over uh, giving Parliament the right to decide Brexit, effectively, uh, the withdrawal agreement, uh, like also uh, the challenge, obviously, when Boris Johnson uh, sought to prorogue Parliament. Yes, he probably had the numbers with it because of his own party, uh, but that actual decision uh, couldn't be stopped there. There needed to be another check, another balancing force, and obviously the court's decided they could have decided otherwise but decided that he didn't have the authority to do that in law uh, and this is particularly significant because the british constitution is not clearly codified uh, it's not written down in, in one place like say the american constitution where judges are no doubt political uh, not entirely political they don't always swing the way they, they the president who nominated the nominated them uh, expects um but Nevertheless, uh, the politicisation of the judiciary is something that's been one of the complaints about uh, the, the emergence of the UK Supreme Court and the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005. So um, how are judges appointed? don't honestly think you would get this as a question, uh, but you might be explain, explain one way that judges are appointed, just in case, let's cover it. So before the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, appointments of senior judges were made by the monarch, which is a bit of a nonsense really, a bit of a fiction, a bit of a uh, smokescreen, on the advice of the Prime Minister and the Lord Chancellor, this senior member of the cabinet, the Lord Chancellor. In effect, this meant that the Prime Minister made all the appointments when positions became available. The system was criticized for compromising the separation of powers and for putting too much power in the hands of the PM. So here's an example where Prime Minister's powers actually had been reduced in recent years, worth remembering that, for other topics. The reforms brought in under the Constitutional Reform Act were designed to make judicial appointments fairer, to aid recruitment from a wider pool. Uh, I mean, this is that more women, more people from ethnic minorities, more people perhaps from less middle-class backgrounds uh, would actually be be in the mix, um, in the hope it would result in the judiciary more representative of wider society. And the role of the Lord Chancellor, this political figure in the legislature, in the executive, Party political figure, would be reduced. Uh, By January 2008, the Judicial Appointments Commission had appointed 10 High Court judges. However, all were white, male and former barristers, and six had been educated in leading public schools. The composition of the Supreme Court in 2008 demonstrated that the aim of making the judiciary more representative of society as a whole would take longer than it anticipated. You know, it's a bit glacial like it was going to take an example uh some change and some have occurred Um, uh, so the arrangements for selecting a justice supreme court were set out in the constitutional reform act of 2005 and this was subsequently amended by something called the crime and courts act of 2013. at present justice of the supreme court must have held high judicial office for at least two years so you know you're going to have a time lag you know it's an awful thing it sounds like covid you're going to have a time lag uh, of people who are already there in a senior position and that represents something that went back on maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I've been a qualifying practitioner, usually he's a barrister and I for 15 years. Um, vacancies are filled by a selection commission convened by the Lord Chancellor. The president of the court uh, chairs the selection commission membership, which will include a senior judge from anywhere in the UK, a member of each Judicial Appointments Commission for England and Wales, the Judicial Appointments Board for Scotland, the Judicial Appointments Commission in Northern Ireland, and one non-judicial member, one what they call lay member. The Selection Commission considers possible nominees and then makes a recommendation to the Lord Chancellor. The Lord Chancellor then can accept the nomination by notifying the PM, reject the selection or request the Ad Hoc Commission, reconsider their selection. Once notified, the PM must recommend the approved candidate to the Queen. And it's obviously a ceremonial thing at that point. The Queen not going to be able to challenge or wouldn't want to challenge that. The very first Supreme Court became operational in October 2009. The founding justices were those active law lords in post at that time. Under the Constitutional Reform Act, the most senior of the Twelve, Lord Phillips, and we'll see him in a video, took on the role of president of the court, with the second most senior judge, Lord Hope, assuming the role of deputy head. These justices remain members of the House of Lords, but they are barred from sitting and voting in the Lords whilst they are Supreme Court Justice. So when they retire, they can go into the House of Lords, maybe on the cross benches, whatever side they wish. Under the Constitutional Reform Act, future appointees to the Supreme Court will not be made Lords. Now, that's the appointment system. Not entirely sure you could get a question on that, but see I mentioned it, so be aware of it. Uh, what are the changes perhaps made by the Constitutional Reform Act to appointments? Might get that for a five mark or explain one of the changes powers of the judiciary this is often a case uh, for a question and particularly this one area called judicial review so the principle of the idea of parliamentary sovereignty means that the UK Supreme Court can't actually strike down UK laws which they consider to be unconstitutional contrast that's with America where for instance Obamacare uh, a law passed by Congress obviously signed into law by the president who wants it you would imagine the Affordable Health Care Act as it was co- eventually became. Uh, has been in front of the US Supreme Court, and they have had to decide whether or not it's constitutional or not. Whether, if you like, federal government can interfere into matters, perhaps, shall we say, requiring the states to pass laws and requiring people to be insured, because that's effectively what it is. Uh, and this is states' rights versus federal government rights. Um, they have so far, in spite of the fact that they're fairly conservative court, have said that it doesn't breach the constitution. Uh, but for instance, in America, where a state wants to bring in significant uh, reduction in the availability of guns or controls on guns, that often comes under the, the issue the court has to decide under the second amendment. And broadly speaking, the courts have accepted the second amendment gives a broad right of Americans to hold guns, carry guns, a very con- contentious issue. But there is something, a document, a constitution they can go to. But under this in Britain, we have a sovereign parliament. That means you say the commons particularly and the lords decide what the law is and the courts cannot strike the Lords the laws down on those grounds. However, the most significant uh, powers that the court does have is the power to review government actions in order to decide whether they've acted what's called ultra-virus, gone beyond their powers. This is carried out through a process called judicial review. Now, the power of the Supreme Court has been enhanced a membership at one stage, of course, and this is changing by the of the European Union and by the Human Rights Act of nineteen ninety-eight. British laws that would have broken EU law can be challenged in the courts. The case that led to this was something called the Factor Team case in nineteen eighty eight, to do with surprise, surprise fishing, uh, which is all seems to be in the news at the moment, which forced the UK government to change the what was called the Merchant Shipping Act of nineteen eighty eight, when it was found by the then Court of Appeal to be breaking was EU law. So under the terms of membership of the EU, member states recognize EU law takes precedence over domestic law. That of course is and has and will change if there's a conflict between the two. So in other words, the idea was EU law is a higher standard than domestic law. I used to always say to my classes that effectively what parliament was doing was rubber stamping and about 75% of the laws what Europe would have accepted. So you could say that this actually is To be fair to anyone who is a Brexiteer, this is bringing back control to Parliament. Though Some people cynically say it's really giving control back to a minority of the population who vote in elections, who elect a party into power with a majority for four or five years, and we're losing some of the checks and balances. So thus, what the courts are able to do, or not able to do, after uh, well, we have left the European Union, will be of some significance, because the EU part of it is largely out of the window. So the Human Rights Act of 1998 has been given the Supreme Court greater scope for activity. Under the Human Rights Act, UK courts can issue what's called a Declaration of Incompatibility where a parliamentary statute appears to violate the rights guaranteed. Parliament is not, however, obliged to amend the offending statute. In the same way, as I said, during the week, uh, Brandon Lewis uh, was uh, accepting that the government... I broke an article two of the Human Rights Act uh, in their uh, failure uh, to, shall we say, accept and follow up and deal with the collusion that occurred in the murder of Pat Finucane back in 1989. However, uh, they're not holding a public inquiry, as he says at this stage. Um, And you can read into that whatever you want, but most people reckon they're not going to hold a public inquiry at all because of political sensitivities, because it affects obviously members of the state going back 20, 30 years. And uh, that's the end of the matter. So the next area is the Supreme Court itself. Um, you might be asked to explain maybe a feature of it, some aspect of it, but the Supreme Court itself was established in, um, in order to address a number of issues. First of all, concerns of the previous system failed to provide a proper separation of powers, particularly regarding regard to the role of the Lord Chancellor in the presence of law lords in the upper houses of parliament. Secondly, criticisms the way that senior judges were appointed, and thirdly, widespread confusion over the work of the law lords. I say, what were they? Were they in the legislature, or were they were they actually just judges? Whilst the Supreme Court did resolve some of these matters, its creation also raised expectations that it would receive new powers. It has, however, continued to do the same work as the law lords with very little change. So the rules that this includes are, effectively it's the final court of appeal, in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. It's hearing appeals on issues of public importance surrounding arguable points of law. It hears appeals from civil cases in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and it hears appeals from criminal cases in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Notice Scotland is different here. Um, The impact of the Supreme Court. The appointments procedure is more transparent and more politically independent. There has been no change to the actual powers of the judges, no more, no less. Thirdly, judicial independence appears to have increased as a result of a clear separation of powers. However, this is more apparent than real as evidence from actual cases before 2005 would indicate The senior judges were already very independent. So, you know, the status quo perhaps, not much has changed. They were already feeling a sort of sense of independence and a role to play. Uh, possible future impacts. Uh, the new building raises the profile of Supreme Court uh, middlesex Guildhall. Hall. Uh, right across the road from the Palace of Westminster, um, near Westminster Abbey, which may enhance its rule in the future. Uh, secondly, lifting restrictions on television cameras and introducing some televised sessions should demystify the rule of the judiciary. And we saw that and you'll see that as well uh, when we look at a few videos. It changes the way rulings are delivered. For example, the text of Supreme Court rulings can be read via the Supreme Court's website all of these changes are likely to gradually change the relationship between the supreme court and other branches of government then assessing the powers of the supreme court now this would obviously come into the kind of 15 mark question uh, to explain the labour government in 1997 set out to try to clarify the rights of uk citizens by means of three key pieces of legislation so there was the human rights act in 1998 there was the data protection act in 1998 and the freedom of information act 2000 and you see, for instance, in a lot of, say, television, radio programs that uh, journalists have sought freedom of information request, so that information that might not have been formally released is released uh, for you know, investigative purposes and uh, to draw to light perhaps a, a wrongdoing or um, some misconduct. The Human Rights Act incorporated most of the articles of the ECHR, European Convention on Human Rights, into UK law. That is not a EU thing. This permits UK citizens to pursue cases under the European Convention of Human Rights through UK courts as opposed to having to go to the European Courts of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So it saves arguably one of the great things about that is uh, to be able to go to Europe to conduct a case is much more expensive than doing it at home. So it saves you the, the journey, but saves a lot of legal costs as well. In summary, the Human Rights Act codified the 18 articles of ECHR into British law. The Human Rights Act has been cited in a number of high-profile cases since it was introduced and has been regarded as making it easier for the Supreme Court to both protect citizens' rights and hold government to account. Two examples of the application of the Human Rights Act are, first of all, the decision by the court to impose a lifetime ban on revealing the new identities of the two boys who killed a little totter called Jamie Bolger, some reference to that awful case um, in uh, the, the Belfast High School website. The court uh, cited Articles 2, 3 and 8 in their decision. And then secondly, the Mental Health Act of 1983 was challenged on the basis that it reversed the traditional burden of proof and was therefore discriminatory towards those convicted of offences who had a mental health issue. The case was taken by a convicted murderer who was being held at Broadmoor Psychiatric Prison and his objection was that he had to prove he was cured before he was released. The court upheld his appeal, citing Articles 5 and 6 of the Human Rights Act in their ruling. The Human Rights Act has featured heavily in a number of judicial rulings, particularly post 9-11. Following the events of 9-11, the government introduced a raft of what were called emergency powers legislation, many of which infringed upon citizens' rights. In some cases which have come to the courts, uh, the Supreme Court has supported the government, but in others they have ruled against them. Examples include the following. Firstly, the Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act of 2001 allowed the indefinite detention of foreign terrorist suspects, Initially, this was seen as permissible as Article 15 of the ECHR allows for the suspension of normal rights if there is a public emergency threatening the life of a nation. However, in December 2004, the court declared Section 23 of the Act to be incompatible with ECHR. Secondly, a famous one known as the Belmarsh ruling. In 2004, a case was heard by the then law lords challenging the Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act. In a case called A and Others, Vice Secretary of State for the Home Department, Home Secretary, the indefinite detention of terrorist suspects was judged to be in contravention of Articles 5 and 14 of the Human Rights Act. This became known as the Belmarsh case as the detainees were held in that particular prison. In June and August 2006 the High Court found that control orders allowed under the 2005 Prevention of Terrorism Act violated Article 5 of the Human Rights Act. The Freedom of Information Act of 2001 initially appeared to have little impact on holding the government or officials to account. It came into its own, however, during the row over MPs' expenses. This scandal was revealed as a result of the Telegraph's decision to publish leaked details of MPs' expenses. And the process was initiated when a journalist, Heather Brooke, requested details of these expenses under the Freedom of Information Act. Worth checking that up, Googling that, looking at that. I do remember being on holiday uh, when that, that occurred. And uh, reading virtually every day because you were able to get uh, the Daily Telegraph. It was the cheapest newspaper. And every day there was another story about a duck pond or a, or a moat or people you know, claiming um, uh, that they were living in a variety of different houses and claiming sort of um, effectively tax breaks on it. Um, and it, it covered everyone. I remember Peter Robinson, uh, who was the MP for East Belfast at the time. I mean, he had claimed for things to do with sort of a, a very, very fancy attache um bag and of hundreds of pounds but he was claiming it on his expenses so these things had to be tightened up the impact of both the events of 9-11 in New York and a, another case terrible terrorist event uh, 7-7 in London uh, my, my cousin uh, was nearly involved in that uh, but she had she had missed her train that day it could well have been a, a casualty of that particular case 7-7 uh, seven, seven in London, was that the majority of UK citizens became prepared to accept restrictions on the civil liberties as part of the so-called fight against terrorism. Um, however, as the threat has receded, uh, opposition to government measures which threaten individuals' rights is growing. A large number of acts have emerged in response to the perceived threat of terrorism, and many of these infringe on civil liberties in a number of ways. And there's a whole list of them here. You know, you uh, 2000, the Regulation and Investigatory Powers Act, allowed police and local authorities to undertake co- covert surveillance of citizens. In other words, you know, um, monitor people um, uh, secretly. The 2001 Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act allowed for the indefinite detention of foreign terrorist suspects, which mentioned. Uh, 2002, the Proceeds of Crime Act allowed for the assets of suspected terrorists to be confiscated even when they hadn't been prosecuted. 2003, the Criminal Justice Act, limited the right to trial by jury in certain cases. 2003, Anti-Social Behaviour Act, allowed for the imposition of curfews. 2005, Prevention of Terrorism Act, introduced control orders. 2005, Serious Organised Crime Act and Police Act. Restricted protests in a vicinity of Parliament. Uh, You would have seen for a a long period of time that sort of... uh, parliamentary green sort of Westminster green. You've seen a lot of people protesting there. Now that has actually obviously changed because you've seen that with maybe with Brexit, uh, people uh, with their flags, be the union flags or European flags or a mixture of both. Uh, there also was a, sadly no longer with us, uh, an anti-war protester who put up a tent uh, outside the um, Palace of Westminster for years on end. Um, and I'm sure I can find his name, but uh, he, he was moved along from time to time. He challenged it, went back again. It's, it became a kind of almost talking point. He wasn't in any way threatening. He just wished to make a political point. Uh, he wasn't trying to bomb or blow up Parliament. He wasn't Guy Fawkes. Um, but do things like uh, this, the uh, Identity Card Act provided for the introduction of a compulsory biometric ID card scheme. Do note these are all under Labour governments. Uh, this 2006, the Terrorism Act made an offence to glorify acts of terrorism. Uh, 2008 Counter-Terrorism Act allowed the police to restrict photography in public places and to monitor those suspected of involvement in terrorist activity. 2009 the Coroner's and Justice Act allowed inquests into deaths related to terrorist activities to be held in secret. 2015 the Counter-Terrorism and Security Act uh, allows police to temporarily seize travel documents and place temporary exclusion orders from the UK. More controversially... It places a duty on local authorities, prisons and schools to prevent people being drawn into terrorism. You know, it's radicalization, if you like, uh, by challenging extremist ideas. And finally, 2016, the Investigatory Powers Bill is an attempt by the Conservative government to require internet and mobile phone providers to keep a record of each individual customer's browsing activity. So the role of the Supreme Court in making sure that citizens' rights are upheld and that government does not abuse these powers is demonstrated mainly through the power of what's called judicial review. Judicial reviews must be instigated by citizens and cannot be applied for by people or groups who are unaffected by the issues. In addition to this, there's a limited time frame for the consideration of a review and government guidelines have made it more difficult for reviews to be instigated. A judicial review must be applied within three months of the decision, which is being appealed against. There's a fee of 140 pounds for applying and while it's not prohibitive, there are additional costs of the cases taken on by the Supreme Court. In order for a case to be heard it must fulfill one of three criteria the decision has to be unfair illegal or has been a failure to follow proper procedures there are many more judicial review cases today than there were before the human rights act was passed in 1998. this prompted the former conservative leader david cameron to call for both scrapping of the human rights act and further restrictions in judicial review in 2014 there were eleven thousand judicial review applications the vast majority of which were asylums cases Judges, lawyers, human rights groups and the Lords have all objected (coughs) to attempts to change or restrict judicial review as they believe it would severely impact on the democratic rights of citizens to be protected from government abuses of power. In case, uh, if a case makes it through the judicial review and is heard by the court... The judges can rule against the government body, thereby overturning their original decision or forcing the body to reconsider. Most judicial reviews are related to a government agency or body, for example, an objection to a housing decision or a welfare issue. Although only one fifth of rulings go against the government, they are an important method of holding the government to account, and as such are one of the main functions of the Supreme Court. Another area is that of judicial inquiries. The second way in which the Supreme Court can hold the government to account and protect democracy is through the holding of judicial inquiries. These are very different to judicial reviews as they are often held a long time after the events and are usually set up by uh, a leader government to investigate an issue or event which happened under a previous administration. Therefore, judicial inquiries are often not about holding the current executive to account, um, but more a way making sure that all governments know that their actions will have consequences and that abuses of power or failures to follow due procedure may come back to haunt them. The main drawback with inquiries is the amount of time they take to reach the conclusions and the sheer cost of holding these inquiries e.g the Savile Inquiry also known as the Bloody Sunday Inquiry cost £190 million and took 12 years to complete. Um, I used to when I was at school used to be involved in mock trial competitions and uh, one of the barristers who helped us, a guy called Brian Kennedy, uh, he was a QC, so a very senior um, barrister, and he was involved uh, in, in essentially the, the inquiry that for over 12 years. And he used to tell me, you know, the, the costs he got when I was getting something like 35p a mile for, for, for travel allowance, because sometimes as teachers you had to sort of take people to various places. Um, he was getting uh, about three times that and travel, he was travelling up from Belfast, lived off the Lisbon Road, up to Derry every day. Uh, well, often every day. So you can imagine even his travel costs were significant. Um, and uh, as a man, by the way, big, big family. So <laughs> I have to say he probably needed the money. Uh, he's now retired. Uh, that has caused many people to question if they are worth the expense. It is also increasing the case that one event can be the focus of several inquiries, which seems more wasteful and unnecessary. Significant inquiries to date have dealt with controversial issues such as institutional racism and the events of Bloody Sunday, making them both significant for wider human rights issues and deeply emotive for the relatives of those affected. Significant inquiries which are well worth a, a deeper investigation would include the Witchery Inquiry, the McPherson Inquiry, the Scarman Inquiry, the Savile Inquiry, the Scott Inquiry, the Hutton Inquiry and the Nolan Inquiry. Uh, these, there are arguments for and against the effectiveness of inquiries And judicial reviews in in holding the government to account and certainly many political commentators have reservations about the increasingly political role of judges however a central part of any democracy is the existence of an independent judiciary that is able to uphold its citizens rights and whose justices feel they can redress citizens grievances if they believe the government has overstepped the mark the conservatives uh, view or the conservative view that judges should not become involved with policy decisions has some support but it's difficult to see how citizens' rights could be adequately protected if the judiciary uh, didn't have these powers and governments were able to ignore any recommendations they find unpalatable. And uh, so there's a couple of links as well uh, about the most recent stories, which you can click on, hopefully. And, uh, you know, and there's a BBC Four documentary and a short video explaining the work of the UK Supreme Court. So we'll leave it there, okay? This recording i'm just going to look at uh, the question of the executive dominance of the legislature in the uk uh, to be more precise i'm just going to do an actual reading largely a reading from the CIA uh, fact file and maybe make a few comments as well so we start off which would be a very good introduction to any essay it is widely held uh, or it's a widely held view that the uk government or executive does dominate the legislature the parliamentary majority that uk governments usually enjoy are Obviously, in recent years, that has not always been the case. The party loyalty generated by the system of party whips, of course, if we would noted, probably not as strong as it used to be, and party loyalty not as strong as it used to be. Clearly, You can see the division there between Conservative MPs or things such as the COVID uh, restrictions, depending on which region of England they come from. Um, that usually means the government is able to push through its legislative programme and avoid being too heavily scrutinised by Parliament. Uh, this fact file, and you could probably substitute this essay, will explore the extent to which this actually occurs and consider if executive dominance of the legislature is a fact, uh, complete fact, partial fact of the UK political system. First of all, the relationship between Parliament and executive. In purely constitutional view, and of course the UK doesn't have a codified constitution, so this is based on the writings of people like A.V. Dicey, Parliament is said to be sovereign the ultimate authority, if you like, and therefore it should be the case that the executive or government is not able to dominate parliament. Dicey argued that the two pillars of the British political system were parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. And you can see that over the Internal Markets Bill, how a lot of people were arguing constitutionally that to renege on a law uh, that was being made, or a treaty effectively made with Europe, was a breach of the rule of law, and therefore Britain had let itself down somewhat in respect of this particular uh, pillar. Obviously, uh, parliamentary sovereignty was to the fore when those were arguing, for instance, uh, against Boris Johnson and against the Brexiteers uh, about the, uh, the need to have a proper withdrawal treaty and to debate properly Article 50, when, of course, uh, Johnson was trying to prorogue Parliament. This implies that the executive, of course, is ultimately subservient to Parliament. Yet anybody who observes the operation of politics in the UK would know that it is not the case. Uh, Lord Hailsham, way back in the 1970s, described the British system as being an elected or elective dictatorship. The CO resource is incorrect here, but in conflict with this is the all quoted remark is the reality that ultimately Parliament can remove an overbearing executive through powers such as a foot of no confidence which is a pretty rare thing, an actual vote of no confidence succeeded, was way back in the 1970s, when James Callaghan, the Labour Prime Minister, was in a minority, and it wasn't terribly hard to topple him then. The elective dictatorship idea, by the way, that uh, Hailsham enunciates uh, will relate to things like the use of secondary legislation, and also the fact that this often comes up when you're discussing the House of Lords and its legitimacy, that the legitimacy of the House of Commons is somewhat questionable, uh, Johnson's party, on about a 65 68% voting turnout in December 2019, managed with 42% of that vote to attain, under the first past the post system, an 80 seat majority. And a lot of people now question the nature of which power is exercised in Britain and how representative the House of Commons is of the votes in the country. It's why sometimes people argue the House of Lords is more representative in terms of its, the representation of the different political parties. So, in this section, the various perspectives will be evaluated and the evidence for each assessed. The case for and against executive dominance? Well, the executive undoubtedly has a number of distinct advantages when it comes to asserting its power over the rest of the political system. The ability to set the parliamentary timetable means that the executive can prioritise key policies and matters which are most important to the government at the expense of issues which the opposition may want to see dealt with. The biggest single advantage the government enjoys is, if they have it, the majority in Parliament, and particularly the House of Commons. This allows the government to push through legislation in the vast majority of cases. As a well-developed whip system and the rise in career politicians, politicians perhaps who owe more to being in politics than to being an outside interest or job, means that individual backbenchers are reluctant to challenge their respective parties. In order to make accurate comparisons, it is crucial to consider the case for and against the idea of executive dominance in both legislation and scrutiny. So does the executive dominate the legislative process? Yes, the majority of legislative proposals, which are discussed in the Commons and Lords, have originated in the executive. This is part of the government's role of running the country. And indeed, the argument is that the role of parliament is not to run the country, but to hold those who do to account. Having succeeded, if they have, at an election, the government is given a mandate to enact the legislative proposals, including its election manifesto. This ties in, obviously, in the House of Lords when we look at things like the Salisbury Convention. This mandate is a significant advantage, and stats tend to show that between 90 and 95% of all legislation passed has originated in the Executive, and only that 3 or 4% originates from things like private members' bills. As the government sets the parliamentary timetable, this gives them a distinct advantage in getting their legislation through and we've seen already how for instance through things like the committee stage of a, a public bill that uh, very much the advantages the, are, are led uh, on the side of, of government in terms of the timetable they use the guillotine kangaroo clauses and the strict whipping and ad hoc nature of those committees um, however the biggest advantage the government has in getting its legislation through parliament is having a majority either secured through election or by forming a coalition The larger the majority, the less the government needs to worry about backbenchers who won't support their legislation. The rise in career politicians and the use of party whips means that politicians will vote the way their party leaders want them to on the majority of occasions. Moreover, if the government really want a piece of legislation to go through, they will issue a three-line whip which will make it clear to MPs that they must support their party on that matter or face the consequences. The ultimate threat from the whip's office is withdrawal of the whip which would mean that the MP would be possibly deselected from the party and would have to stand as an independent candidate. Since independents tend to do badly in the British system, this is a significant threat of the one that is infrequently used. In addition to the overall majority the government enjoys in Parliament, the government also has a majority of seats on public bill committees, which is where the detailed examination of bills takes place. This means that the bill that the Commons and the Lords will eventually vote on is likely to be very similar to the bill that the executive drafted in the first place. The government also has additional use, as I've said, of procedures such as the guillotine motion, which allows them to stop debates if they're taking too long. The powers of the House of Lords themselves have been curtailed ever since the introduction of the Parliament Act in 1911. That Act took away the House of Lords' ability to veto legislation. And of course, in 1949, the part of delay, which effectively the Bill gave it, was reduced further to one year and removed the Lords' ability also to amend or reject finance measures. In addition, the Salisbury Convention also emerged during the Labour government of 45-51, and means that the House of Lords cannot interfere with a measure that has been included in the government's manifesto. On the other side of the argument, there is the suggestion that Parliament is still sovereign and the government has to subject all of its legislative proposals to Parliament to be ratified. If the government thinks that a measure is going to be very unpopular, it will consider withdrawing it from the parliamentary schedule, rather than face a large and potentially embarrassing defeat situation is clearly more pronounced if there is a coalition government or a government with a small majority. MPs can also introduce their own legislation through private members' bills. Although there is less chance of PMBs passing and very little chance of it not able to get the support of MPs, it does give MPs a method for introducing legislation, which is important to them and either reflects a long-standing interest or reflects a matter which has been raised by a constituent. Approximately 10 private members' bills get passed each year, although some are on high-profile controversial matters, which the government does not want to be associated with directly, but may like to see introduced by others, such as the 1967 Abortion Act. Other PMBs, uh, bills are seemingly more mundane topics, but are nonetheless important to MPs. There has been an increase, of course, in backbench rebellions in the last 20 years, which demonstrates that even though there has been a rise in the number of career politicians, MPs are still prepared to vote against their party if they feel strongly enough about an issue. These backbench rebellions often reflect factions within parties and will occur during the consideration of contentious bills, when parties often find it more difficult to maintain party unity. Public bill committees often make a considerable contribution to redrafting of bills. Although it is true that the government will have a majority of these committees, this does not mean that this will affect their legislative scrutiny of a bill. Most of the work they do is to make sure the bill is legally signed and does not conflict with other departments, or in the past, obviously, with the EU or with human rights legislation. Public Bill Committees do now take expert advice and will sometimes recommend major amendments which can significantly change the Bill from that which the Government originally intended. The House of Lords, though its powers has been significantly reduced following the 1911-49 Parliament Acts. Uh, can and does do still challenge the Government and regularly hands out defeats, some of which require Government to make concessions, often before the, the defeat is actually uh, occurs. The House of Lords has experienced itself a resurgence in legitimacy since the 1999 reforms, which saw the removal of the majority for hereditary peers, with only 92 of them remaining. The Lords has come to be seen as more effective than the official opposition at opposing the government, as it has received some good debates about a surprising range of bills. The Lords has stood up to the government over a range of issues such as detention of terrorists or terrorist suspects, and in recent, recently in the Cuts in Disability Living Alliance. Although the House of Lords can technically only delay a bill for up to a year, it is the case that 40% of all bills the Lords tries to stop will not become law. Furthermore, the amendments that the Lords makes uh, to bills are usually taken on board by the Government due to the expertise of members of the House of Lords and the lack of tight party allegiances. In other words, the Lords views are trusted. In terms of scrutiny, select committees are specifically designed to allow Parliament to hold the Government account. These are small and specialised. In other words, MPs stay on these committees permanently, unlike public bill committees, which are ad hoc and only last for the duration of a bill. Membership of select committee is much sought after by MPs who take their job in select committees very seriously. They can call for expert witnesses, documents and people to appear before them and give testimony. A select committee shadows each government department, and they're designed to make sure that the executive branch is working effectively, spending public money wisely and not breaking the law or doing anything that's beyond its powers. Select committees write reports, which are taken very seriously. Although the government can try to wriggle out of the report recommendations, they can only do so occasionally as government, which is seen to be doing this on numerous occasions, will be seen as untrustworthy by the public. Some of these committees are extremely powerful, such as the Public Accounts Committee or the Estimates Committee, which have a big part to play in keeping an eye on the public finances. Question time in both the Commons and Lords is another significant way for Parliament to hold the Executive Account. There are two types of question time, PMQs and Minister's Question Time most significant of these is PMQs in the House of Commons, which is held on a Wednesday at noon for half an hour a week. Prior to Tony Blair's tenure as PMQs would take place twice a week in duration of 15 minutes, Blair argued that a one-half-hour slot would make it more effective and reduce the pressure on his nerves. Blair reportedly said that he dreaded question time every week, other Prime Ministers have said that the same, suggesting that it's a good way to keep the government on its toes. During question time, the Prime Minister will be asked questions about major policy initiatives or about matters which are a concern for individual MPs and their constituencies. If there is a big crisis that week, either national or international, then they will expect to be asked about that. Whilst the PM will have advance notice of the first question, the MP asking the question will ask a supplementary. The Prime Minister will not have notice of, and it's the question which may catch them out. The other type of question sees Government Ministers question at length. This can be for two to three hours once a month about what is happening in the Department. Debates can give MPs an opportunity to question government policy and to draw attention to aspects of policy which are unfair and needed to be changed. The televised coverage of Parliament means that a good point raised in a debate may well be taken up by the public and in the media and may result in pressure on the government to change that policy or approach. Adjournment debates give opposition MPs an opportunity to raise any matters of concern of them and happens at the end of each day that Parliament is sitting, likewise with early day motions. Written questions are also frequently Used by MPs, particularly when dealing with constituency matters. These are an effective way to get something addressed as they require written response. It's much harder for a minister to wriggle out of something if they have already committed to it on paper. But no to all of these points. The government can use its majority and select committees to try to influence reports in their favour. Failing that, the government can use the team of lawyers and other experts who work in the Prime Minister's office and the Cabinet office to try to wriggle out of self that committee findings. The government won't reject or ignore select committee reports all the time, but they can reject them some of the time, and there's very little select committees can do if the government doesn't follow up their recommendations. The PM is, moreover, well-prepared for question time. They will have their answers drafted by a team of civil servants and other junior ministers. The individual style of prime minister makes some prime ministers more successful at this. For example, Cameron had a media background and was adept at handling even the trickiest of question times. A prime minister who performs well at question time looks stronger, probably, and is more likely to be kept on as party leader. The PM should be able to dodge any potentially difficult question either by avoiding answering the question or by turning it to their advantage. There are planted or pro-government questions which are designed to support the PM and the governing party, by drawing attention to a policy or initiative which the MP asking question will claim is working well. These give the PM an opportunity to try to show the public the government is working. Minister's questions are not as big a spectacle and are not as well attended as PMQs. However, the Minister for Significant Departments such as Health, will get a full turnout whereas ministers for smaller departments such as Wales and Northern Ireland aren't likely to have as many MPs' interest in what they have to say. Debates can be curtailed by a government using, for example, a guillotine motion. The government's inbuilt majority and better resources are also in making sure that debates in Parliament rarely catch the government out totally. Written questions are rarely on big picture issues but are more likely to be on specific constituency matters. Although they may force a minister to address a particular issue, they're not really holding the whole government to account. and In some cases... Uh, it can be said that the, the question can't be answered because of course because of commercial sensitivity, because of national security. Uh, these so-called uh, sort of tactics are often used by government. And that essentially uh, probably uh, con- concludes it, except to say recent research by Meg Russell and others attempted to test the accuracy of why they held belief the executive dominates the legislative process. There were considered the amendments made to 12 parliamentary bills, including the Welfare Reform Bill and the Identity Documents Bill, The conclusions they reached were that the appearance of executive dominance distorts reality. By examining amendments to the bills listed above, the researchers demonstrated that through the amendment process, Parliament still has a significant degree of influence over legislation. Furthermore, they discovered that Parliament has a greater degree of pre-legislative influence than is often assumed, so that the executive will react to what they anticipate Parliament's response to be. The government will not risk alienating their own backbenchers, and nor will they court defeat in the Lords. In this respect, we can see that both members of the House of Lords and backbenchers have some influence over legislation. And in conclusion, the research carried out by that team is a reminder that it shouldn't be automatically assumed that the accepted view of the relationship between the executive and legislature is the correct one. As with relationships, the reality is often more complex than it first seems. The size of the government's majority has a significant impact on the extent to which the executive can and will dominate the legislature. Similarly, the external political and economic environment, thus in terms of economic downturn at the moment and COVID, clearly government is under a lot more pressure and a lot more focus on what they do. These factors will have a huge impact on the relationship between the executive and parliament. The more substantial the majority, the more the government can ignore backbench rebellions, as was often seen during the Blair government's first term in office. Similarly, a coalition government or a government with a small majority needs to be more careful about backbench discontent. And it is more likely to avoid putting forward unpopular legislation or making, perhaps, to make concessions in the first place. And there we go.